Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the earth. Notice that phrase. And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now in Psalm 8, this is a Psalm of David. I'll just start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still or quiet the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now I want you to notice something in both of these uh, in Genesis 126 and here again in Psalm 8 verse 5. There's a, there's a similar word that's used. Genesis 126, it says, and God said. That word God is the word Elohim. It's spoken of in relation to God in three parts, the Trinity. There's another word that's used for God in the Old Testament, and that's Jehovah. And the difference in the use of those words really has to do with the context. Elohim is most often used when it's talking about relationship, God's relationship with man. Jehovah is most often used when it's talking about a display of God's power or the works of his hands. This same word Elohim is used in Psalm 8 verse 5. I'll start again in verse 4. I want to reread this. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. That word angels is the word Elohim. It's not saying God made man lower than the angels. It's saying God made man lower than himself. But the Bible tells us, and, and Jesus was questioned about this. The, uh, the Jews, especially the Jews of Jesus' day, it's still the same way uh, to some degree, maybe not to as great a degree today, but the Jews are into angels. I mean, they are into angels. It's very much a part of their experiences. They're very much a part of their doctrine, their beliefs. The Jews are really in the, into the angels. Well, a, a situation arose in Jesus' earthly ministry where Jesus questioned the Jews. And he said, how can man be lower than the angels when God said man will judge the angels? Well, that blew their, their doctrine, their theory all out of the water. But what I want you to see is God made man in his image. That means in his likeness. That means an exact or duplicate copy of himself. Now we know that the purpose that uh, the Bible states that God made man was to have authority on the earth. And things changed when man fell in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve yielded to Satan's influence instead of God's instruction. Everything changed. Man died spiritually. Man was separated from God. His nature changed. His nature changed. Now think about what that means. The Bible says that we can understand the things of God by looking at the creation. Well, that would have to be true for man's creation too then, wouldn't it? In other words, what I mean is that would have to be true. If it is true, then it would have to mean that God was, when God breathed his life, his spirit into man, man had God's DNA. DNA is considered to be the building blocks of who we are. As I understand it, only identical twins have, uh, are the only ones that don't have DNA unique to themselves are identical twins. And I'm not sure that's even complete. There may be differences there too. Now, I don't know much about DNA, but I watch TV shows <laughs> where criminals are caught and, and dealt with because of DNA. Now, I've seen enough of them where I feel like I can speak with some authority. <laughs> no, not really. But I can read. 
I can do research and read and come to understanding based on that research. Now, the DNA thing is that twisted ladder deal that we've all seen. It's called the double helix. Hey, I've done a lot of research on this. Don't take it from me. I want to be able to show off. Geneticists, through study and research and so forth, geneticists have, uh, have declared, have identified that if all the information in a molecule of DNA could be written down, in other words, your genetic code, if it could be written down, it would create 1,600-page books. Now, DNA is created at fertilization or at conception, which is a real big support for the argument that life begins at conception. I know a lot of people talk about, regarding the abortion issue, they talk about a lot of things. Life begins with a heartbeat. Some people say life begins at birth. Others say life begins at conception. And if it's not interrupted, it'll continue to a full term and a natural birth. That's the way God made things to be. Well, when man fell, what did that mean to him? When man died spiritually, did his DNA change? I'm just posing the question. I don't know. I don't think there's any way we could know with certainty. But folks, that is the reason why the Virgin birth is so critical to our relationship with God and our belief system. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then there's no way that he could have avoided or been separate from the law of sin and death that passed upon all men because of Adam's fall. Thank God he was born of a virgin. Thank God the incarnation is real. It's true. Now think about what that means. That means that Jesus had God's DNA. Just like Adam had to have had in the beginning. And that means that out of nothing, out of nothing, because of the word of God that was spoken concerning Jesus' birth and Mary carrying Jesus to be delivered into this world, that means that Jesus had God's genetic code. From nothing, there was a sperm that fertilized an egg in Mary and made life. From nothing. Well, when the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation, what does that mean? That means we become alive spiritually. That means our nature changed from death to life, just like Adam's nature changed from life to death at the fall. Man has to, if he's a new creation, if he's a child of God, man has to have God's DNA. Christians have to have God's DNA. Now, there are things that the, that the Bible talks about, particularly Paul. Paul had the training of the high priest. And what that means is, and, and this boggles my mind, but the high priest had to have memorized all of the law and the prophets. In essence, memorized the Old Testament. How does somebody do that? But Paul had that same training he had completed that same course. He was on the, the fast track in the priesthood. He never could be high priest because he was of the tribe of Benjamin rather than the tribe of Levi, as was commanded at that time. Well, I guess it's always been that way. But Paul, having the uh, teaching, being the educated man that he was, having the understanding of both the Hebrew and the Greek languages that he did. And, and I want you to get this. Paul was highly, highly educated for his day. It's part of the reason God chose him. He was just as comfortable operating in the Hebrew language as he was the Greek. 
which made him an ideal choice on another front. But Paul identifies everything that God did through Jesus, bringing him here to the earth to be our sacrifice. He identifies everything that God did through the Old Testament concept of grace. Now, he wrote in the New Testament, which means he wrote in Greek. But it's based on the concept of the Old Testament grace. Now, grace was not a big word in the Old Testament. It just wasn't. It's a huge word in the New Testament. But the Old Testament context, the Old Testament word picture, if you will, that the Hebrew word grace paints or portrays is simply the word simply means kindness or favor and the image is someone of higher estate stooping down to help someone of lower estate that's all grace meant in the old testament as i said it wasn't used a lot the first time it's used is where it says i think it's genesis chapter six and god and noah found grace in the sight of god but it's the word grace is used extensively in the New Testament, in a variety of ways. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 8 says. It's telling us that everything God did for us, He did because of His grace. Not according to the law. Of course, the, the argument in Paul's day was the law versus grace. And so he uses a lot, uses the word a lot in that context. Thank God he did. But the Bible really indicates that everything God did for man, he did because of his grace. Everything he did for man, he did through Jesus. And as a result, there are hundreds of definitions that are given by ministers, commentators, expositors, and so forth about what grace means. Why is it so hard to define? The greatest, probably the most common uh, Definition, the one that's used more greatly than any of the others, is unmerited favor. My problem with that is nobody gets out of that phrase, that definition, favor. We get the unmerited part. So I really don't care much for that, that definition. I guess it works in some, some cases, some places. But the definition of grace that I like more than anything else, or better than anything else, is the finished work of Jesus. Because everything that Jesus finished and accomplished was, as the scripture tells us, a because of grace. And it's through Jesus. That gets me to focus on what he did and who I am. Rather than the unmerited part. Granted, it wasn't merited. Granted, nobody has earned it. And nobody deserved it. But who cares about who we were? I want to focus on who I am. Don't you? Well, back to, this, back to the word grace. Why is it so hard to define? Why is it so hard to, to explain? Why does it not fit in some little neat box? See, there are some places where the finished work of Jesus is not a good definition for the way the word grace is used in the New Testament. In some places, it's perfect. But in other places, it's not so good. So I'm not claiming to have, a, have some new revelation or have coined some new phrase that's uh, a one-size-fits-all type thing. It just doesn't. But here's one thing that I've noticed about the subject of grace, and that is everybody associates the grace of God with their own experience. Here's what I mean. Probably the, the most famous, most well-known teacher of grace in the church today has experienced God's delivering grace and so everything becomes about deliverance to the person who sinned and God has reached them and found them or they found him through some terrible affliction or bondage of the enemy and great sin in their lives and so forth then delivering grace is going to always be first and foremost for them always but you know my story. I was saved as a kid. Delivering grace doesn't really factor in too much for me. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I was delivered from spiritual death just like the person that sinned all their lives when they got saved. But as a six-year-old kid, almost seven, just a few days before my seventh birthday, I didn't have some long history of, of sin in my life. I didn't have these terrible things that I had participated in all the days of my life to be delivered from. That doesn't discount the delivering grace of God that brought me into the kingdom of heaven, that made me a part of God's family. But it's just not my experience. For me, the experience of grace has more to do with sanctifying the work of sanctification than the deliverance from death. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, grace is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. It's talked about regarding deliverance. It's talked about as a part of the work of sanctification. It's talked about as a part of the work of strengthening or empowering you to overcome. It's talked about as a part of what you're called to do, the work that God has for you to do, or service. And it's also used in context with sharing. How can, the, how can the word grace be used in all those contexts? Grace apparently, and I'm not talking about from the Greek language. I'm talking about from church doctrine, from New Testament revelation of God and who he is and who Jesus is for us. The word grace seems to be an all-encompassing word that's as big as God is. And therefore impossible to put in a little box. Let me show you some of the things the Bible says about grace. Let's go first. To Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 7 it says. Talking about in Christ. Well let me back up. Let me start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me stop here long enough to make a comment. What does, I want you to consider this, what does the word grace mean when Paul adds it to his salutations or his highs? Hello, grace and peace be unto you. When we say hi, how are you? We're not expecting somebody to really tell us. We don't want somebody to really tell us. <laughs> we want somebody to respond with, fine, how are you? And so it doesn't mean anything. Saying hello doesn't mean anything to us. It did mean something to Paul. And he wanted it to mean something to the church. Ten times, in ten, in ten, ten different times in the letters that Paul wrote, he said, grace and peace be unto you. There were several other times in the letters that Paul wrote where he talks about the grace of God being to you, either opening or closing the letters that he wrote. If we don't have an understanding, at least a working knowledge of what grace means and what grace is, then this verse of Scripture is meaningless to us. Grace and peace be unto you in the name of Jesus our Lord. What's he saying to us? Well, we can easily remedy the peace part by saying, well, we know we have peace with God. God's made peace with us through Jesus. But what about grace? Paul goes on to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, folks, there is no way to identify when he says before the foundation of the world. There is no way to identify if he's talking about the Genesis creation or literally the recreation after the earth becomes without form and void. Or if it's talking about before he ever made the original earth that became without form and void. There's no way to tell. We don't know. But let's put it this way. At what point does God come up with a new plan? 
at the spur of the moment? Maybe another way to ask that is, was God surprised when the earth became without form and void? The Bible says in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 45, the Bible says God did not create it in vain. It's the same phrase, the same Hebrew phrase that's used in Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about the earth being without form and void. It could easily and, and accurately be translated, God did not create the world in vain, but darkness covered the face of the earth, and the earth was in vain, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Same phrase, same exact thing. The Bible's telling us God's not the one that plunged the world into chaos, that caused it to be without form and void. God didn't do that. Well, was God surprised that that happened? How do you surprise God? He knows everything. He knows everything that was. He knows everything that is and everything that it will ever be. God wasn't surprised. So we cannot conclude, just knowing the character and the nature of God, we cannot conclude in any way whatsoever that God's plan for man to be created in his image, in his likeness, a duplicate copy of himself and to be given authority on the earth. There's no way we can come up with anything that satisfies our understanding of God as given by the word other than God planned that before he ever made the earth. Now, I'm not talking about the earth that Adam and Eve inhabited. I'm talking about the earth before whatever it was that became without form and void. The point is God's plan for you is as eternal as he is. There is no beginning. There is no end. It always was. Those types of things, those types of truths help me understand what it really means to be in Christ. Don't they, you? I mean, some people don't want to know this stuff. Some people don't want to think this stuff through. But I'm convinced that Paul had. I'm convinced that these are the things that Paul's trying to tell us. Again, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Before God ever made anything, he had you in mind. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. That just means foreordained, preplanned. Having preplanned for us to come into the adoption of children by or through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom, in Christ, that you're accepted in. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, you're accepted in him. In fact, God went through a lot of problems and a lot of earth, ages of the earth, a lot of difficulties, put up with a lot of disobedience, put up with a lot of things that he didn't have anything to do with, that the work was the work of the devil that the church has blamed him for so that you could be in him. in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You're probably familiar with the story. I don't think it's a true one, but one that's used for illustration, that there were four blind men that came upon a, an elephant. And they were asked to describe what an elephant's like well, the first one grabbed a hold of the tail and said, an elephant's like a rope. The second one examined his leg and said, the elephant is like a tree. The third one felt the side of the elephant and said, an elephant's like a wall. And finally, the last one took hold of the trunk and said, an elephant's like a water hose. Well, which of them are wrong? Each of them are right, but they don't have a total picture, do they? I think that's the way the, the subject of grace is in the church. 
That's why I said grace means to us mostly, primarily, what we've experienced it to be. Notice it talks about riches of his grace. The riches of the things bought and paid for us by Jesus. Notice Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's Paul telling us? It's telling us God's throne is the, God, is the throne of grace. And that it's available to strengthen you. To save you. To bring you into his plan for your life. To serve others. To sanctify you. It's available in every aspect. Every facet. Grace can be seen. And should be seen. There are times where Paul talked about being a minister. And he did this a lot. He talked about being a minister according to the grace of God that was given unto him. He talked in one place about Barnabas, Acts chapter 11. Well, the Bible talks about it. Paul didn't say it. But in Acts chapter 11, I believe it is, it tells us about Barnabas being sent from the church at Jerusalem uh, as far as Antioch to check on the spread of the gospel. And it says when when, uh, Barnabas came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God on the church. Paul talked about his own experience of going to Jerusalem and presenting himself before James and Peter and John to share his gospel, to share the things that he was preaching. He said, lest I had run in vain. He let them judge it. They were the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He let them judge his message, his preaching. And the conclusion of that was, it says, and when they saw that the grace of God was given unto me to go to the Gentiles, just like the grace of God was upon Peter for the circumcision to go to the Jews. They sent us away willingly. Grace can be seen. Grace should be seen. But if we don't know what it is, how do we know what to look for? Look with me to another passage. Um, oh, here's a, here's a good one. You'll be familiar with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll start in verse 1. It says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Let me make a couple of comments about that. First of all, it has to mean that Paul's experience was when he was alone. Because if you were caught up into heaven here in the church service, we'd be able to tell whether your body went with you or not. (laughs) But something that's even more important about this phrase is that Paul couldn't tell whether or not he had a body when he was caught up into heaven. We pay so much attention to our bodies. We pay so much attention to what, what our bodies want, how our bodies want to operate, and so forth. But Paul said, all I know is I was in heaven. I have no idea whether I had a body or not. We might want to develop ourselves and commit ourselves to being a little less body conscious here on the earth. Because if going to heaven, if the experience of being in heaven means you can't tell whether or not you've got a body, then why do we give it so much influence over our lives now? So Paul said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, more than 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, can't tell, was caught up into heaven. Verse 4 how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. It doesn't mean God wouldn't let him tell. It means he didn't have the words to describe heaven. Heaven is indescribable, according to Paul, at least in his experience. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. The word infirmities means weakness. He's going to tell why he glories in his weakness. 
For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear. Lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. He's saying, don't make some illusions out of me being caught up into heaven. I am who I am. I am who you see and know. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. I'm going to have to do some identifying of what Paul is saying here as we go. Notice it says, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. Now, I know a lot of the church, I hope this is not your position or your belief, but I know a lot of the church, the modern-day church and, and the church for several hundred years, has presented the idea or believed the idea that Paul had some terrible sickness and disease, that God wanted him to have sickness or disease for the very reason that he said that he should not be exalted above measure. Well, you know what the church believes about being exalted? The church believes that God doesn't want you to be exalted, so he will humble you. When in fact, the Bible says just the opposite. God said on several places in in the scripture, God says, humble yourselves and I'll exalt you. And notice what Paul identifies will be the the reason that he is exalted or somebody might be tempted to exalt him above measure. He says and identifies very clearly this through the abundance of revelations. He's seen Jesus so many times. He's received word from the Lord himself that he's preaching and teaching about who we are in Christ and so forth. So what does that presuppose? That presupposes that God does not want him to be exalted above measure. Can I make a suggestion, folks? Wouldn't it just have been easier for God if that's his point? If that's his purpose, if that's his intent, so that Paul not be exalted above measure, all he has to do is quit giving him revelation. The idea that God gave him the revelation that would cause him to be exalted and then gave him some sickness to keep him from being exalted sounds like God's got multiple personalities. God's not schizophrenic. Well, what was this messenger of Satan? What was this thorn in the flesh? Well, notice where it came from. It didn't come from God. It says it was the messenger of Satan. Now, the word messenger is the word angel. In the Greek, it's the word angelos. It's translated the vast majority of times in the Bible as angel. It's talking about, in every place it is used, sometimes uh, there are two or three different places I think this one and one other place in the scripture where the word angelus, uh, the Greek word angelus is uh, translated messenger. But it's always talking about a personality. Always. It's not talking about a thing. See, even if it was sickness and disease, then the Holy Spirit messed up because sickness and disease is not a personality. Now I realize that this doesn't cut in the eyes with a lot of people that want to believe that Paul was sick. Okay. But the Holy Spirit is not careless about words that he uses. He's very precise. So it's talking about a personality. It's talking about someone. Well, what could someone bring against Paul that would create a problem for him? Well, everything we read about where Paul goes into, city after city after city, he's persecuted. And it's always people. Sometimes it's the Jews, sometimes it's the Gentiles, sometimes it's a combination of them. But it's always people. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations that was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger or personality of Satan, to buffet me. The word buffet means deliver blow after blow after blow. Sickness doesn't do that. But Paul was persecuted time after time after time. There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Folks, please understand, it's the devil that didn't want people to exalt Paul, not God. God's perfectly fine with Paul being exalted as a result of the revelations. God wanted people to think well. He wanted the church to think well of Paul so that they would listen to what he preached. 
It's not God trying to hold this guy down. But the devil sure is. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Here's this word weakness again. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power or so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, weaknesses, reproaches, judgments, in necessities, doing without, in persecutions. We know what those are. In distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, folks, let me, let me um, point something out. Of all the times that the Bible uses the word grace, Old Testament and New, but particularly New, there is never a time where the Bible talks about healing being a result of the grace of God. Now, we know that it is. We know that the grace of God is the thing that caused Jesus to take everything that man owed a, pri- owed a debt to, to pay the price for every aspect of the law of sin and death. So we would have to say that just as forgiveness of sins or redemption, or let's say it this way, we'd have to say that forgiveness of sins as a part of redemption is according to God's grace. He stooped down to help us. We would have to say that everything else Jesus redeemed us from, sickness and disease and poverty, would be according to God's grace. But never does the Bible specifically identify grace with healing. Never. People come to Jesus all the time in his earthly ministry and say, have mercy on me, and he heals them. Nobody ever comes and says, have grace upon me. It's just not there. Grace is always identified. As a matter of fact, the the Greek word grace, let me define it for you, tell you what it means from Strong's Concordance. It means the divine influence, the godly influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. But here we see that it's a strengthening agent or results in strength, divine strength. And Paul gets it. There's a couple of things about this uh, passage of Scripture that really blows my mind. One is Paul makes a big deal about asking God three times for it. I mean, the reason he says I asked the Lord three times for this means he's trying to make a point. What's his point? You don't have to pray three times about much of anything concerning yourself. That'll change your prayer life. Most of us go back and ask God for things to over and over and over again. Paul said this was so important to me that I asked God three times to remove this from me. And his answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made per- perfect in weakness. Literally what that's saying. I know a lot of the church twists that around where it comes to sickness and disease. If Paul had sickness and disease, then Jesus would be telling him here, no, you're supposed to stay sick by my will. Well, folks, if that's true, we've got a lot of the Bible we've got to tear out. of, A lot of pages we've got to tear out. It's just not true. Paul identifies that what the Lord is saying is that I never promised you that you wouldn't be persecuted. You need to know something, folks. We are not redeemed from persecution. Now, that may not be good news to you. We're promised to come out of it on the other side. We're promised strength and help to overcome persecution. But Jesus said they, if they persecuted me, he told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Furthermore, the Bible says, Paul tells us, and he seems to have a little bit of experience along this line. He said, they that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Which, as a side note, is probably the reason most people aren't persecuted. You'll get that later. (laughs) So here Grace has talked about a strengthening agent. And Paul latches on. He takes hold of it. And he says... Therefore, I look for the places where I'm weak uh, in myself. 
I look for the places where I have physical weakness. I glory in those things because that means in those physical weaknesses, in those things that are too great for me to do, though I look to be weak, though I appear to be weak, that's where the power of God will make me strong. He's saying, or it follows, the logical reasoning follows, God's not going to strengthen you in things you're strong. Why should he? But he will strengthen you in things you're weak. Paul's acknowledging his weakness when it comes to persecution. When it comes to the attacks that were made against him in almost every city he went to. He's saying, that's where I've found the strength of God. Remember that Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Doesn't say a word about you being strong in yourself. It says be strong in the Lord. Here's Paul's example of how you do that. Smith Wigglesworth was talking about the same thing, I believe, when he said, when I feel like I'm strong in the faith, that's when I'm the weakest. Because I'm relying on the feeling of strength. But where I feel the weakest in faith, that's where I'm the strongest. Because all I've got to rely on is his word. Let's look at another couple. Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll start in verse 6. But this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Notice the word grace. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, notice he talks about grace in relation to prosperity or provision, whichever word you like best, take your choice. Some people get freaked out about prosperity. And they'll always quote the scripture that says, the prosperity of fools will destroy them. Well, folks, God's giving you a hint. Don't be a fool. The prosperity of the wise does not destroy them. But here's talking about provision. Paul is talking specifically about giving, the attitude of our heart when we give, and so forth. And he says that grace extends to provision. God is able to make all grace abound towards you so that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. He's saying God will make you rich enough. Or let me rephrase that. He's saying God has the capacity to make you rich enough to give to every good thing you see. Now notice it doesn't talk about the grace of God for you to have 12 houses and 42 cars. And I think, uh, I, I hate to have to say things like this. If you need a new car, believe for a new car. If you need a new house, believe for a new house. If you need a second house so you can get away with your family, believe for that. God doesn't care. But please realize that there's a lot more to life than just the stuff you have. And once you come to the place where you've got enough stuff, what are you going to do then? If you've built into your life the practice of giving that God says there's a grace for, then the things that God gives you, the things that he brings into your possession, will be blessed. But the real joy in life starts when you can help somebody else. Notice he talks about the grace of God where giving is concerned. Let me back up a chapter to chapter 8 and point something else out here. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, we want you to know, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. 
What? It's saying very simply this. King James English is covering up what what he's trying to get across, what he's trying to say. And what he's saying is very much that even though the churches in Macedonia, remember Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia in the book of Acts, it tells us. Those churches, even in the midst of poverty situations, were still great givers, liberal givers. And notice in verse 1, he says, and you Corinthians, I want you to have the same grace of God that they have. Their grace of God led them to give liberally no matter what their circumstances were. Even though it looked like they were impoverished themselves, they always came up with some way to give. Now, folks, as I said, Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia. You remember what Paul told the Philippians in chapter 4? He said, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He didn't make that claim to anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean nobody else was in line for it. But the one place that he tells the church, the one church that he speaks to is the church in Philippi, the chief city of Macedonia, that he exhorts the Corinthians to follow their lead, to follow their example, and not be determined. Not, don't let their giving be determined by what they have. Can you see that? All right, let's keep reading. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality, their giving. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty. That just simply means they wanted to be able to give more than they did. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. He's saying they gave us an offering for you. They gave us an offering for others. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. He's simply saying that they were willing to do whatever God told them to do. They were willing to obey what God told them to do, no matter what. The story I told you when we were receiving the offering about Brother Hagin and the $10 that the Lord directed him to give the traveling minister that caused he and his family not to have a Christmas. He's saying the same thing. He's saying because the people gave themselves to the Lord first, and here's the secret, that's what makes obeying God easy. When you've already given yourself over to him, just doing what he directs you to do is simple. That's who these people were. And God, by the Holy Ghost, calls it a grace. He said, in so much, verse 6, that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so would he also finish in you the same grace also, same giving. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now notice verse 8. He said, I speak not by commandment. I'm not commanding you in the name of the Lord that you have to do this. See, folks, when people want to argue about tithing or giving or all this kind of stuff and the idea that, that has been planted in so many people's minds about the church and the ministers that minister uh, the word are just after your money and all this kind of thing, that's just a lie. It's just an excuse. Paul says, I'm not commanding you. I'm just urging you to follow their example. I speak not by commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. He's saying Jesus paid the same price according to the grace of God or by the grace of God. Jesus paid the same price for lack and for poverty that he paid for sin and disease and sickness. It's all according to grace. So when you were redeemed from sin, redeemed from spiritual death, you were redeemed from lack and poverty too. Now when you know that, it makes it easy to give yourself over to God. It makes it easy to surrender your purse strings to the direction of the Holy Ghost. But the people that are fighting it, the people that are fighting against it, the people that struggle with it over and over and over again, 
Here's where they're stumbling. They really don't believe God would be better to them than they would be to themselves. And that's what it all comes down to. That's what obedience in the tithe comes down to. It's what obedience in giving comes down to. When you know the character and the nature of God, that he will do better for you and be better to you than you would even be to yourself, why not serve him? I'm about out of time. Let's run through some of this real quickly. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to have to start in verse 1 here too to get the context. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, verse 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that phrase reasonable service as spiritual worship. Remember when uh, Jesus was talking to the woman at the, wish, at the uh, I just confused or conflated the woman with the issue of blood with the woman at the well of Samaria. So the woman with wish shoes. <laughs> at least I saw what I was doing, right? The woman at the well of Samaria was questioning Jesus about where do we worship God. And Jesus said, the day is coming and it now is where they that worship God must worship him in spiritual, spirit and in truth. This is spiritual worship, not just singing in tongues. Spiritual worship is the way you live. That always goes over big. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me go back to that. The reason it's the, the issue, the reason that it's spiritual worship is because the way we live is the way that we can show to others outside the family of God what the grace of God is. It's the only way the grace of God is going to be seen is if we live according to the word and according to the Holy Ghost direction. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or determine by experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Notice the words of himself are in italics. We certainly don't want to think more of ourselves than we ought to think. But folks, I would submit to you that that's not the problem of most of the church. The problem with most of the church is not to think too highly of themselves. The problem with most of the church is that they have not renewed their mind to who they really are. Which will cause you to think more highly of yourself than you used to think. Not because it's you, but because of what Jesus has done. So really he's saying don't think about anything more highly than you ought to think. He's saying don't allow strongholds, wrong ideas, reasonings against God and against his word to hold sway in your life. Think according to what God's word says. Think according to the truth. The Bible talks about, Paul talked about casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Well, if we're to cast those things down, what are we supposed to do? Renew our mind to what the Bible says. Believe and accept what the Bible says is truth, because it is. For we, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, meet, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members of another. Notice verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. This is not strengthening grace. This is not saving grace. This is not sanctifying grace. This is not giving grace or serving grace. This is a grace that puts us in place to fulfill God's plan and purpose for our lives. Everybody has a grace from God to do something. It's something that makes you unique. It's something that will bring you into the fullness of God's plan and purpose for you. So he gives us a list of some things. I don't necessarily believe that this is a complete list. I think he's just given us some examples of what this grace upon us to do will produce. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Prophecy means to speak in a known language by the inspiration of God. Some people are gifted to speak. Some people aren't. 
He says, if that's your thing, then prophesy according to the proportion of faith. That means people will prophesy. People will speak for God on different levels. You'll remember the story of when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And after that, with the knowledge that he was going to be put in chains, was going to Rome too. It says that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city that bonds and afflictions awaited him. People were trying to talk him out of going right and left. Because the Holy Spirit made it very plain and very easy to recognize and identify what was ahead for Paul. But remember, Agabus came down. And he acted out what was going to happen. He took Paul's girdle and wrapped up his hands and said, So shall it be for the person that owns this girdle. And the rest of the group tried to talk Paul out of going. But Paul convinced them. He was not convinced by them. He convinced them. That it was the will and the plan and the purpose of God for him to go. But Agabus prophesied on a different level than the others. He was a prophet. He stood in the office of a prophet. Well, a person that stands in that office would certainly operate to a greater measure or operate in greater measure than somebody that was just used occasionally to speak for God, wouldn't they? And notice he said that the thing that determines that is the proportion of faith. That doesn't necessarily just mean their knowledge of the word. It could be the understanding of what the Holy Ghost speaks to them to say. Well, what's another one? He said, our ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Word ministry just means serving others. We usually put these things in, in um, um, read them in a mindset of public ministry or public focus or whatever. But this just means some people are gifted to serve. You remember Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Martha was a server. And Mary wouldn't get with her to serve and to, to follow her plans. She wanted to get around Jesus. She sat at his feet. Martha was a server. Well, notice that because Martha was a server, she thought everybody else ought to be servers too. That's the way it works with this stuff, folks. The way you're made is the way you think everybody else should operate, too. Right. That's right. But if everybody was just like you, there'd be a lot of things that were missing in the church. If everybody was just like me, nothing would ever get done. <laughs> We'd know the word, but nothing would get done. I like having servers around me. Our ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaches, on teaching. Now, you have to operate, uh, have to understand that this operates on different levels, too. Some people are teachers in the body of Christ. Other people are teachers in Sunday school. Other people teach their kids. God doesn't make a distinction and say the people that are on the platform are in the pulpit. Those are the real ones. It's the same grace gift for everybody in this category. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, he's calling giving a grace of God too, again, just like he told the Corinthians. Or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, please notice there is a grace gift to rule or to lead. He that ruleth with diligence. One translation says, to him that has the gift to lead, for goodness sakes, lead. He that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Notice that there is a grace of God just to show mercy. There's a translation in, in, uh, about this verse that talks about that as visiting the sick. Those that visit the sick. Now, I don't know where they get it. I'm not sure it's a good translation because the words that are used there don't really fit the way the translation is, uh, is presented. But it says, to those that visit the sick, let them do it with the light of God's glory in their face. Well, this is certainly not saving grace. This is certainly not sanctifying grace. It's not even strengthening grace. It's serving grace. I believe God wants the grace of God to be known by us and known unto us in every way. Don't you? But that's not the way it's presented. 
It's always presented as one little thing, one little track, and that's always the track that the person teaching or ministering has experienced. Finally, turn with me over to, to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read from beginning in verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, talking about your home in heaven, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. These guys were aware of the other letters that, that were being written. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle with, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. In other words, people in Paul and Peter's day twisted the word for their own purposes. Just like they do today. You, therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things. Ye, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the, of the wicked, fall from your, your own steadfastness, but grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Now, folks, how do you grow in grace? When Jesus completed his work on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, everything that God would ever do for mankind was already done. If you come to God for healing, Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross or go back and take one more stripe on his back for you because the price was paid for all of us, right? So how do you grow in grace? Grace can't get bigger than it already is. It's like righteousness. You can't grow in righteousness. That was obtained by the blood of Jesus. So how do you grow in grace? Folks, the only way I know that fits is the rest of what Paul says and in the knowledge of Jesus. The more you grow in the knowledge of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, the more we grow in, our knowledge, in the knowledge of the word that we have depicting what Jesus has done for us and obtained for us, then grace gets bigger to us. But it's already a word that, that defies description. It's already a word that's used, I believe, to show the bigness of God. There's no other word in the Bible like the word grace. Every other word we're able to identify and, and define. Every other word has specific boundaries about what it means, what it doesn't mean, and so forth. Grace is this thing that encompasses everything. Because that's who our God is. He's all-encompassing. He's all-saving. He's all-delivering. He's all-strengthening. He's all-in-equipping you to serve. And he's all-in-providing for you to give. Everything you need is already wrapped up in grace. Let me read one more thing to you. And I'm doing this as a warning there's a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born in 1909. He died in 1945 in a Nazi concentration camp. He was a theologian. Wasn't an old guy, 36 years old when he died. But he was one of the first ones to speak out against the Nazi party in Germany. And as such, the things that he did and the things that he said, the things that he preached, the wisdom that he imparted to the people... Now looking back is even more impacting than at the day that he did it. And so there were a lot of things that, uh, that he spoke of as far as the days that they lived and the, the things that were going on in Germany around them. He was born in Poland, but he uh, pastored in Germany. Let me read you something that he said. I don't know when he said this. I don't know when it was, but like I said, he died in 1945, so it had to be sometime before then. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, theologian, and martyr, said, cheap grace, cheap, C-H-E-A-P, cheap grace 
is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He went on to describe the true grace of God, which he referred to as costly grace. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is costly. It is as sacred, holy, and precious as the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Isn't that good? Folks, there's a lot of places, a lot of ways that grace can be used as an excuse to not live according to the word, to not live obedient to the commands of the Lord. But the grace that God has provided for us cost him his son. It cost God his son who was willing to do it knowing who we would become. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of all that you've done for us through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name for saving grace, for sanctifying grace, for strengthening grace, for serving grace, and for sharing grace. We thank you, Father, that you are abundant to us. Your grace is abundant to us in all these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here with us. God bless you. Have a great day.